out in the lobby, there's that uh, display that uh, most of you know about, that who's in your world display with all the multicolored ping pong balls. Those are not golf balls, by the way. Uh, you won't do very well hitting those on the course, but um, what that's all about is it's an effort for us to make disciples of the people in our world. And so, um, sort of a visual thing for us to look and see who we're praying for, who we're sharing God's word with, who we might uh, share the gospel with, and, uh, those, and then finally those believers that we are trying to uh, help grow in their faith. And um, the, the idea really is for us to identify the people in our world. And because Jesus called us to make disciples, not just the pastor, not just the, the paid people or whatever, but all of us to make disciples of the people in our world. And one of the most uh, important features of making disciples is what we call the harvest. Uh, the harvest is incredibly important. You know, ask any farmer whether the harvest is important. I mean, you've got to plow the ground, you've got to plant the seed, but ultimately, you want there to be a harvest. Without a harvest, uh, things haven't gone well. And so, uh, Jesus himself called God the Father the Lord of the harvest uh, before he asked us to participate with him in this disciple-making endeavor. And so... The harvest is really the goal. And uh, I want to share with you a, a text message, part of a text message. I'm going to redact it just a little bit. Uh, but from a church member uh, that I received this week. I received this text message this week. And, and uh, this church member said, David, you know, I, I'm not saying anything necessarily about uh, this, this effort that we have on what we're, we're trying to do. He said, but I want you to know that I'm going to use the initials uh, uh, that a gentleman by the name of, I'm going to call him TJ. He said, I want you to know that TJ stopped using drugs. I know this for a fact. He and I work together. Um, in fact, he's the only one whose initials I put on a ping pong ball and put it in the display. He said, I've known this man for 15 years. He's getting baptized this Sunday. Now, I'll share that with you because there's nothing magical about a ping-pong display. It's sort of silly if you think about it. But it's not that a ping-pong display works. It's not that a program works. But who works is God. God is the one at work changing lives. And uh, that is what we're striving to do. We're striving to do our part in seeing God change people's lives. Not just for this life, but really for eternity through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, let me just encourage you to continue to pray for those people in your world that uh, you know need to be discipled for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is more information out at that display. Now, so, if somebody came to you, if somebody in your world came up to you, and you've been praying for them perhaps, or maybe even sharing God's word with them, and they said, look... Hey, I know you're a believer in Jesus. I, I know you go to church and, and that, that type of thing. Uh, but I've got a question for you. How do I get saved? If someone asked you that question, how would I get saved? Would you know what to say? Would you know what to, what to do? And, and if, you're, if you'd honestly say, well, I wouldn't even know where to begin. That's okay. 
That's okay. Let me, let me share with you a verse uh, that you might want to share with someone if they were wanting to be saved. The, the New Testament has a number of verses that are really very good and descriptive about how to be saved. But here's one that I would like to share with you. It's in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Very famous verse because it is so evangelistic. And it simply says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life. So you have this contrast. Sin leads to death, physical and spiritual. But God gives us a gift. And the gift is eternal life. How? The gift is given in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you could use this simple verse and explain to someone that, listen, if today you will trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, God will take you from receiving the penalty of sin, which is death, and he will give you the gift of eternal life. And so that's a, that's a great verse to share with someone who might want to be saved. Let me make it more challenging. What would you do if you had to share a verse from the Old Testament? What passage in the Old Testament tells us how to get saved? And some of you may be thinking, well, I, I didn't think anybody got saved in the Old Testament. Well, of course they did. In fact, they got saved the same way we get saved today. And so, um, if that question is, is valid that there's a passage in the Old Testament that tells us how to be saved. And if you were here last week and you were in, you know we were preaching it through Genesis and we're in Genesis 14 last week, you might be able to guess that that verse will be in Genesis 15 this week since we're going sequentially through the book. And so I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15 and we're going to see a most amazing story of how Abram later known as Abraham, how Abram got saved. In it's in Genesis 15. And here's what we read in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of Yahweh, that's the, that's the name of the Lord, the Lord God of the universe, okay, Yahweh. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. The verse begins by saying, after these things. What things? Well, the things in chapter 14. What happened in chapter 14? Well, what happened in chapter 14 was that uh, some kings from the east came in and started doing battle, and in the midst of the battle, they uh, kidnapped a bunch of people, including Abram's nephew, Lot. Abram didn't care for that very much. So he got all of the men of fighting age, all of the trained men of fighting age in his household. Not just his kids, but we're talking about servants because at this point he didn't have any kids. The men of his household, there were 318 of them. This is how massive of an of a enterprise Abram had. There was a, there was a time uh, years ago when I... Um, was uh, sharing the gospel with a man, a very wealthy man, most wealthy, the wealthiest man I've ever met. And uh, it was an older man. 
And he had years before had a company uh, in Tucson, Arizona, or sorry, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he had 300 people as employees in this company. He sold the company for $100 million. Wealthy man. And I had the opportunity to befriend him, and he was baptized and, and, uh, and so forth. But you think about someone who has 318 men like Abram did in his own employ. This is a wealthy guy. So Abram takes all these men, these fighting men, and he chases down these kings that had kidnapped his nephew Lot. And he slaughtered the kings and rescued Lot and a bunch of other people and a lot of possessions and brought them back. And then after that, this guy Melchizedek, who to this point we hadn't heard of before, Melchizedek comes along. Who's Melchizedek? Well, he's the king of a town called Salem. He's also a priest of the Most High God. He comes up and he meets Abram, and he blesses Abram. And Abram is so moved by this that Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of all that he owns. Well, then a second fellow comes up on the scene, and this guy is the king of Sodom. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll get to that in a few weeks. This guy's the king of Sodom. Not a very good moral person. Certainly not a moral society that he was king of. He comes up to Abram and he says, let's make a deal. I want, I want all these, uh, these people back. You keep the money. And Abram said, no, I don't want your money. You take it all. I'm not going to make a deal with the world. Like, we as Christians shouldn't either. And so Abram rejected the overtures. Well, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. Now, I don't think I've ever had a vision of the word of the Lord in the same way that Abram probably did, but I think it may have scared Abram, as you could imagine, to somehow meet with the God of the entire universe. And so Abram was naturally afraid, but the Lord said, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. What an incredible idea that God himself is a shield. What is a shield? A shield is where you hide. When you're being attacked, a shield is a refuge that uh, you hide under. And the Lord says, I am a shield to you. It reminds me of in Psalm chapter 18, the psalmist put it this way. He said, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a relationship with God like that? Where you can talk about the Lord being your shield, being your everything like that. The psalmist goes on later in that same psalm, and he says, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. 
If you don't know God in that way, this verse right there tells you the problem. You're not taking refuge in him. Maybe you're trying to avoid God. Maybe you're trying to ignore God. But there's a person who runs to God and says, you are my refuge. And to that person, the Lord God becomes a shield to you. So back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, the Lord says to Abram, that I will be a shield to you. And then he says, and your reward shall be very great. You think about Abram having 318 grown fighting men at his disposal, not, not mentioning the young ones, not mentioning the women, not mentioning the elderly men that are part of his uh, household, part of his enterprise. And I would say that God has already rewarded Abram. In fact, Abram was already wealthy when he left Ur of the Chaldeans and began this great journey. And then Abram made a mistake and went to Egypt, but God took care of that too, and Abram became even more wealthy. And Pharaoh gave Abram even more wealth, and Abram was re rewarded then. And then Abram had the slaughter of the kings, and he took their wealth, but he didn't keep it for himself. Abram all, has already been incredibly rewarded, but God is basically saying, I'm not done. I haven't even begun. I haven't even begun. I have great rewards for you. I will reward you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram is rewarded in such an incredible way that Abram doesn't even under, understand yet. But I'll tell you what. If a church having about 100 or so people in Lubbock, Texas, 4,000 years later is talking about you, you must be pretty important. God had some incredible plans for Abram. This idea of being rewarded, you know, you and I think, well, what, you know, just little old me. I can't ever be rewarded like that. Listen to me. Your reward in Christ it's absolutely incredible. It's more than you know. You see, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he, he, he began, the Ephesians is ch six chapters long, and in the first three chapters, Paul is talking about everything that God has done. Everything that God has done. All the ways that God has blessed us. In every single way. God has blessed us with blessings upon high, and he, and he goes on to describe all of this incredible rich theology of everything that God has done. And at the end of the first three chapters, Paul is so overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving that Paul just has to, he, he has to burst out with a few verses of a prayer, of a praise to God. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, Now, to him who is able to do, think about that, God is able to do. God is able. Some of us have forgotten that. God is able. Not only is God able, he is able to do far more. So not only is God able to do something, to do all things, God is able to do far more. And not only is God able to do far more, God is able to do far more 
abundantly. And not only is God able to do far more abundantly, he's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand according to the power that works within us. The power of Christ Jesus within us. You have these blessings. And it is to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. But God is ready to bless you with rewards God is able to do it far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand. Back to Genesis 15, in, in verse 2, Abram has a problem. Abram has to be grateful for what God is doing. You would imagine, even just having a vision from God it would be an incredible experience. But Abram, he's got a problem. He's already wealthy. But there's something in his life that's missing. That's very obvious. And Abram states it this way. Abram said, Oh Lord Yahweh, what will you give me as I go on being childless? And the heir of my house, Gazeliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no seed to me, behold, one born in my house is my heir. What's the point of great wealth if you don't have any family to give it to? Lord, you promised me back in chapter 12 that I'd be a great nation. But here I am. I'm old. I'm childless. And God, don't tell my wife, but she's old too. We're past those years. I just don't see how it's going to happen. So how am I going to have a, how am I going to become a great nation if I have no kids? I don't want cattle and sheep and servants. I want a child. And I don't have one. So the Lord responds in verse 4. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him saying, this one will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. God makes a promise to Abram. God speaks. And Abram now, just like you and me, are left with a choice. When God speaks, we have a choice today. We have a choice. We can believe what our own eyes tell us. And Abram's eyes were saying, I don't see any kids around here. 
And I don't see how it's going to happen. Not at my age. Not at her age. Ain't going to happen. We can either believe what we see with our eyes, or when God tells us something that contradicts what our eyes tell us, you have a choice. Are you going to believe your own experience? Or are you going to believe what God says? God sometimes calls us to believe that which we cannot see with our eyes. And so we have a choice. Then in Genesis chapter 15 verse 5, we read, And he brought Abram outside and said, Now look toward the heaven." And number the stars, if you are able to number them. And the Lord said to him, So shall your seed be. And now Abram, he believed in Yahweh. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This is the verse in the Old Testament that tells you how to get right with God. Such an important verse. This is the verse. If you believe what God has said, God counts your faith in him as being made right with him. Abram is the first person in the entire Bible to get saved. The first person to get right with God. Now I'm sure that Adam and Noah and others in that godly line uh, experience God's grace. There are hints to that all throughout Genesis. I'm sure that we'll probably see them when we get to heaven. But Abram's experience here is the first time that the Bible describes someone getting saved. And so every single one of us who has gotten saved, Abram was first. He is our spiritual father in that sense. This verse is so important that this verse is quoted in the New Testament not once, not twice, but three separate times. It's quoted in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he, he says, in hope against hope, he, that's Abram, he's talking about Abram, in hope against hope, he believed. What's hope against hope mean? He's old, he ain't going to have any kids. It's hope against hope. It's just not going to happen. But, in spite of all the circumstances, Abram believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken when God took Abram outside of his tent and said, look at the stars, so shall your seed be. And without becoming weak in faith, Abram contemplated his own body now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, 
with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to do. What's faith? Faith is simply this. Faith is being fully assured that God didn't lie to you. That God, what he says, he's going to do. That's faith. And Abram rested in that faith. He was fully assured. He believed beyond measure with all of his being. He said, I believe God. I believe God. Therefore, it, what, what, what's it? Abram's belief. It was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, God looked at Abram's belief and said, now you're right with me because you believe. And then in the next verse, we read, not only for Abram's sake, not for, not for his sake only was it written that it was counted to him, but for our sake too, to whom it will be counted as those who believe upon him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Wait a second. What is Paul saying? He's saying, Abram believed in the promise of God that Abram would have a descendant. What Abram didn't know is that that descendant would have further descendants and those descendants would eventually bring forth the Messiah of the world, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is because God kept his promise to Abram that Jesus came into this world. And now, just like Abram believed in the word of God, you and I believe what God's word says when it says that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And when you and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, God counts our faith as us being right with him. What an incredible gift. What an incredible gift. Is that what you deserve? No. Is that what I deserve? No. We've sinned against a holy God. We deserve death. But what does God do? God says, I know you sinned. My son paid for it on the cross. And I raised him from the dead. If you'll just believe, then I will count your belief as righteousness. I'll count your belief as being right with me. And then in the last verse, verse 25, it says, he who was delivered over, that's Jesus Christ, he who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. What's that word justification mean? Sounds like a big theological word. It is. It's a big theological word. It's a legal term. It's a legal term that means that in the eyes of the judge, that's God, you and I are found not guilty of our sin. Paul is saying that Jesus' death on the cross paid for the penalty 
of our sins and that Jesus' resurrection proves that we are right before God. We're justified in God's eyes. We have good legal standing before the judge. How do I know? How do I know that I have good legal standing before the judge? Because Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins, was raised from the grave. If he was not raised from the grave, we would have no idea whether we have good legal standing before God, whether we're right before God. But because he was raised from the dead, we are justified. The same Apostle Paul writes to the church at Galatia in chapter 3, and he also quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, in chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit, that does, so does God, God has given us the Holy Spirit, and so does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, have you received the Spirit of God because you've obeyed Moses' law so good, because you're, such, you're so good at obeying the Ten Commandments? Paul said, no. You're given the Spirit of God. God does these miracles in you, and God even saves you because you've heard about the promises of God and you have faith. It's by hearing with faith. And then in verse 6 of Galatians 3, here it is. Paul says, just as Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, so know that those who are of faith, that's you and me, those are the sons of Abraham. And then in verses 8 and 9, I love this. It says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify us Gentiles by faith, the scripture proclaimed the gospel beforehand to Abram. When did this happen? This happened even before Abraham was saved. In Genesis 12, when God first met Abram, and he said to Abram, all the nations are going to be blessed in you. God was proclaiming the gospel, the good news, to Abram. This was a promise that was fulfilled by Abram having faith and ultimately by Christ. And so we read, so the, then those who are of faith, that's you and me, we are blessed with Abraham, the believer. What an incredible title for Abraham. Why is Abraham called the believer? Because he was the first one. He was the first one to believe. He was the first one to get saved. He's our model. He's our example. You want to get saved? Do what Abraham did. Have faith in what God said. You'll be saved. God will make you right with him. Again, Paul uses the word justify in verse 8. You see that? And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In other words, God promised to make us Gentiles, us non-Jews, we're not physically sons of Abraham, at least most of us probably aren't. But he promised to make us right with him by doing with us what he did with Abram. So how can you get right with God? Is it by doing good deeds? 
helping enough little old ladies across the street, buying enough Girl Scout cookies, is, is that it? Or maybe by being religious? Look how religious I am, God. Is that how you get right with God? No. You get right with God by faith. Having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing in him. Genesis 15, 6 is quoted one other time in James chapter 2. And in James chapter 2, James, he's about to quote this verse too. Genesis 15, 6. But James uses the word justify in a different way than Paul does. You know how a certain word can have more than one meaning? When Paul says we're justified, what Paul means is this, that we're made right in God's eyes. When James says we're justified, what James means is this. You prove your faith by doing good deeds. A changed life proves your faith. And so Paul and James don't contradict each other. But the question for James is, has Jesus really changed your life? You say you have faith in Jesus, but has he changed your life? If you have, then your works justify or prove that your faith is real. And so it's in that sense that James talks about Abram in the same way. In James chapter 2, verse 21, James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? What's he saying? James is saying this, in Genesis chapter 15, that's when Abram first believed God. And God said, that's it. You're right with me now. Seven chapters later, Genesis chapter 22, many years later, by this time, God has given Abram a son. His name's Isaac. And God tells Abram, I want you to take your son, your one and only son, the one in whom I promised to fulfill all of my promises to you. I want you to take this son, and I want you to kill him as a sacrifice on an altar. This was a test of Abram's faith. This test would prove whether Abram's faith back in Genesis 15 was real. So in Genesis 22... Abram says, okay. And he takes Isaac up on a mountain. And he binds him to an altar, ties him down. And he raises his knife. And he's about to plunge it into his only son. And God stops him. And says, now I know that your faith back then was real. And James, centuries later, writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, his faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, but says, And Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How was Genesis 15 fulfilled according to James? It was fulfilled, it was proved, when Abram said, I believe you so much, God, that I will sacrifice my son to you. I believe in your word that much. And because Abram believed in God that much, look at the last thing. 
that James says. And Abram was called the friend of God. After that almost sacrifice, after that, the relationship between Abraham and God was one that could be best characterized as a friendship. Do you know God like that? That you can truly call him a friend. That God can truly call you a friend. Today, this day, 4,000 years plus after Abraham, would you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you trust him with your salvation. Trust in him alone. God says to you, if you will believe, I will count your faith as being made right with me. Would you do that today?